The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hello and welcome to Lever Time, the show where we get the Washington Post to correct their own fact checker. I am your guest host, Producer Frank. David Sirota will be out again this week. Uh, my sincerest apologies to all of the Sirota heads out there who were awaiting his return. On today's show, we will be talking about one of our reporters here at The Lever who easily disproved the Washington Post fact checker and forced the publication to issue a correction on a highly sensitive story. Then we'll be talking about the very important and underreported CHIPS Act and how it might actually be a giveaway for corrupt tech giants. Finally, we'll be sharing David's interview with Stacey Walker, the first African-American to be elected to the Lynn County Board of Supervisors in Iowa history. David spoke with Stacey about his experience governing as a progressive Democrat in a red state during the Trump era and what national Democrats can learn from him. This week, our paid subscribers will get to hear the best moments from the Levers call-in show from this past week, in which David and special guest Kate Aronoff discussed where the climate movement goes from here after the passing of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. If you would like access to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to all of our premium content, and you will be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you like this podcast and you like our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever. Forward them our emails, share links. You know, the only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all of the help we can get to continue doing the work we're doing. As I mentioned, David is not here again, sadly. Um, we're actually at this point thinking about changing the name of this podcast to Producer Frank Time. It's on the, everything's on the table. We haven't made any decisions yet. Please tweet at us if you have any opinions on a potential name change for the podcast. But let's dive right into our first lever story for the week, in which we're going to be talking about the Washington Post. Now, it's no secret that we here at The Lever despise corporate media, especially legacy newspapers like The Washington Post, which pretend to be arbiters of objective truth, but are in fact owned by fucking Jeff Bezos. Well, The Post experienced some controversy recently. So last month, The Post's fact checker, this guy named Glenn Kessler, wrote a piece which ended up being very widely shared in which he questioned the validity of a news story out of Indianapolis about a 10-year-old girl from Ohio who had traveled to Indiana for an abortion after being raped. So Glenn writes this column questioning the validity of this horrific crime, um, and it was immediately picked up and amplified by tons of conservative media outlets, you know, basically calling bullshit on liberals like, oh, look, look, look at all of this fake news about these horrific rape abortion cases, right? Because that's what conservative media does. Um, until the original story was ultimately confirmed by reporters. So look, we, we understand that reporters occasionally make mistakes and need to correct their reporting. But when it comes to baselessly questioning the highly sensitive story of a 10-year-old rape victim, Glenn and The Post clearly did not do their due diligence. 
So now we will be joined by the levers Andrew Perez, who decided to do a little digging and find out where the Washington Post's fact checker got his facts from. Andrew Perez, how's it going, dude? Thanks for thanks for joining us on Lever Time. Of course. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here, as always, on our Lever podcast. You're definitely one of our top three favorite reporters uh, who appear on Lever Time. So um, you can take that with you when you leave here. I will. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, you did some really great investigative reporting this past week for The Lever about uh, Glenn Kessler and The Washington Post. So give us a little background on this this Post story that uh, Kessler had written up and what it had originally reported. So The Washington Post's uh, fact checker, columnist, Glenn Kessler, you know, sort of a known... Uh, enemy of uh, progressives and uh, progressive media in that he's, uh, you know, constantly sort of uh, botching facts in ways that serve uh, corporate interests and, uh, you know, then get weaponized against the left. Um, he, I, I, I did he, not know Glenn um, Kessler before this, so I'm really glad that this was my introduction to him. Yeah, it's a pretty putrid one. This this is probably the lowest that, that he's gone. I mean, I really got to assume so. Um, so he wrote this column, um, you know, basically trying to fact check this story um, about a 10 year old um, rape victim who needed to travel from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion after um, uh, after the Supreme Court knocked down Roe v. Wade and invalidated uh, federal protections for abortion rights. And this, you know, pretty extreme Ohio law was allowed to take effect. Um, and so, you know, there was this sort of conservative media firestorm about this story. The second um, the second that Joe Biden had had sort of uh, talked about it, even for a second on TV, um, they they all you know there was this like smear campaign to to just say that um you know maybe this whole thing is false this story is too good to be true too good to check um, which you know is total nonsense we've we've since learned that um that actually the story you know was accurate um, that uh, someone has been arrested for committing this crime um, but in the meantime uh, Glenn Kessler wrote this column questioning the sourcing of the story. Um, you know, basically raising questions about it being um, based on, you know, a single source. And the source in this case was literally the, the like abortion provider, like the doctor who performed the procedure, um, who was on record, you know, by name in in um, the Indianapolis Star. And can I ask you, would that normally uh, meet like sort of the basic source requirement, like a, a doctor on record? Yeah, I would think so. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a medical professional. Mm -hmm. But I think I do think that there was also even some backup verification in the story, like where like they spoke to like maybe some other people who who worked at the, the clinic. Um, but, you know, still this this there were the news narrative was that like, oh, it's, you know, just a single source. Um, and it's, you you know, a, a woman who really subjected herself to like a, a pretty big, um, you know, pylon for 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 publicly sharing this story. Anyway, so so Glenn um, went through. He started contacting both like the Ohio governor's office um, to be like, have you heard of this? And then um, contacting um, these like county children's service agencies um, and you know, basically asking them to like, hey, like I, I mean, the email is ridiculous what we found, um, but basically saying like, hey, like, have you heard of this story in your area? 
like thinking that it would have to be reported to children's services. Um, and so we, we got his correspondence with the agency that actually made uh, a criminal referral to, to the police about, about this case in Columbus. What we found was, um, Glenn wrote in his piece that he'd contacted all these children's service agencies and that none of them had, had heard of the matter. Right. Um, and then, you know, once the piece was, they, they had to kind of update the piece once there was, you know, the reports about, um, someone being arrested for committing this crime. Um, so he, they, he then said that he'd contacted, um, officials in Franklin County you know, Columbus, Ohio, um, and that those officials did not offer a response. And what our email showed was that was, you know, a flagrant bullshit. Um, actually, they had given him a response. And what they told him is that um, they would not be able to talk about specific cases because, like, they're, they're barred from doing so under um, Ohio law. And and how were you able to obtain those emails? We submitted a public records request to the Children's Service Agency in Franklin County. So basically, this terrible thing happens. This this 10-year-old is, is raped in Ohio, needs to get an abortion in Indiana. Joe Biden mentions this story. Conservative media jumps on it and is like, this can't be true. And then Glenn Kessler of The Washington Post basically does conservative media's dirty work and is like, yep, I checked. It's no one knows anything about it. Yeah, that's that's right. And then what did you actually discover from the Franklin County emails that you got? Well, so what we found was that his his story about how um, Franklin County officials did not offer a response was not was flatly, you know, incorrect, just not true. Um and what ended up happening is the Washington Post said that he missed that communication. Um, but so they said it's not true and that they would not be able to talk about this because Ohio law prohibits them from sharing information about specific cases. And that's not that should not be surprising either. Right. Like there's there's like there's like federal statutes here and there's there's like state laws in many, many, probably almost every state saying that like children's services agencies cannot talk about cases involving um, involving children. You know, since since we've uh, reported this story, we got back correspondence from one more county um, and like showing their emails with Kessler. And, you know, so those those officials actually said, like, we, we haven't heard of a case, but if we had, we wouldn't be able to discuss it with you because of like Ohio confidentiality law, mm -hmm. uh, rules. So. Like the fact that he left that out of his piece, you know, the, the, that like there are uh, laws at play here that would bar county services agencies or children's services agencies for, from sharing just information about this with him is is just a ridiculous um, oversight should never should never have been allowed. Like should, it, it should have been a really basic fact checking question here. Like, would I be able to learn information here if I if I go this route? Right. Like. But he just, you know, left that out. And instead, the piece, you know, raised all these like five alarm fire questions about sourcing when like, you know, the Indianapolis Star's reporting here was accurate and just, oh, my God, such a shit ton better reporting job than whatever Glenn Kessler put into this. So it's the distinction of between him saying these counties said that this didn't happen versus these counties aren't allowed to tell me if anything happened. And yeah. Yeah. As the Washington Post fact checker, you think he would he would you think he would make that distinction? Yeah. And the missing an email excuse is kind of ridiculous, right? Like 
you don't really write like in a piece like uh, this person did not respond to to a request for comment like if they have like mm-hmm. you definitely are checking your email for that sure um it's just not something because it's it's one of those things where they can be like yeah i did mm-hmm. like yes i did <laughs> very, very um, easy to find so, the receipts on that yeah yeah and you know here like god knows if they if they did raise any any question or a, any issues with the post it's not clear you know we we didn't see any kind of like extended communications chain here just um just that kessler reached out and they replied i mean reporters occasionally you know make mistakes in their reporting but what was there something specific about kessler or this specific story that made you want to follow up on it you know for me one of the things that really raised a flag was, um, you know, so his piece did generate like some controversy when it when it first came out. And, and then when it was updated, because like because it was used like it was weaponized by conservative media to to raise all, you know, all these questions about, you know, a story involving like a 10 year old victim here. Right. Like this, this this girl is a victim. Mm-hmm. Like there's no reason to be putting you know, the, 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 these kind of resources into questioning this story, um, a story where a doctor was on the record. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I found his whole kind of updated correction to just be really, really ham handed, sort of like blaming other people. He, he did an interview with Neiman Lab um, where, you know, he was pressed on like his basically his skepticism here. And he, he said that um, that. You know, the, the story was based on like the, the word of, uh, of an activist in one side of the debate, you know, referring to this abortion provider as an activist in, uh, in one side of the debate. It just, it just speaks to, um, you know, how conservative, how conservative and establishment corporate media have, um, you know, basically just injected this like falsehood into in, as the basis of like everyone's reporting this idea that like objectivity is like airing out both sides of a debate um which is just it's just fake it's bullshit it's totally fake um and especially like in this case like what, what what's the other side of the debate here like it's just it makes it makes absolutely zero sense and it you know there's so many so many clearly like uh, you know, bi- bi- biases clearly played a giant role in the conception of this story, in the execution, and the fact that like there was a decision made to publish it at all, right? Like the idea that like anyone is fully a- that any reporter is fully objective and has no point of view is is just fake. It is an absolute uh, fake construct that is just you know tearing apart journalism generally. Um, and it's 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 you know for me like. I think like we all kind of understand that, like that in our organization that like people's views, you know, affect framing, they affect story selection at the at, at the bare minimum. Um, and, and clearly that happened here. Right. That clearly happened um, in Kessler deciding to do this story. But he also doesn't seem to have gone about reporting it fairly at all. So you found all this out. You did all, you did all this digging. You we published a piece at the lever where you basically detailed all this. What? What was the result of that? Did the Post or Kessler respond to your piece? Kessler did not respond to my email. Um, but the Post, a spokesperson did. Um, they thanked me for bringing this to their attention. And they corrected the piece relatively quickly, within like two hours, like before before the deadline I gave them. They, they corrected the piece and they noted, you know, this issue. But now, you know, if you were to, if you were to read the piece now, like, 
with the with them noting that like the Franklin County officials said that they couldn't you know couldn't answer questions about specific cases. Like you read it now and you're like, why was this published? Mm -hmm. Like absolutely, why is this published? Why is it on the internet? Like you didn't raise questions at all. You just threw questions out there and you know assumed because you were because it it was coming from the Washington Post that. That they were important and vital and that people should, you know, that then, then, then rely on that to tear apart, you know, a story about a, about a child rape victim. It's insane. Right. It's a highly, highly sensitive story that became uh, essentially a conservative flashpoint and the Post decided to wade in on it. And rather than treat it carefully, they were like, well, let's also just kind of take the hatchet to it. Just really a really sloppy piece, just a terribly sloppy job from from the post fact checker. And like, you know, it's it's not like he's never been sloppy. Right. Like there's there's all these kind of like fact checks he he did on, on the Bernie campaign, like, um, you know, raising questions about the percentage of Americans who, um, you know, are, are uh, suffering through medical debt. Like, you know, the Bernie campaign based that on like literally a study. Um, a study was used to inform his talking points, like a like a totally reputable study. And, you know, Glenn then had to, to, to question effect, effectively, like what the definition of is is here, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. on that study. So he's you know, he's like known for being kind of pedantic and and, and annoying. But, um, you know, there's I, I, I think in this case, this this approach clearly crossed a line. Well, Andrew, I'm really impressed by your attention to detail and your uh, ability to, to to dig this shit up when it's necessary. So really, really great work on this piece. Um, glad, to, glad to call you uh, a co-worker and a colleague and a friend, I would say, at this point. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. For our next story, we're going to be talking about microchips. So if you've been paying attention to the supply chain disruptions that have been caused by the COVID pandemic over the last two years, you know that the U.S. has a big microchip problem, specifically that we don't make them and that we have lost the leading edge in designing and manufacturing most advanced microchips. Because after decades of globalization, which has offshored our domestic production, the U.S. has been left behind when it comes to manufacturing semiconductors which is microchip technology used in goods, including everything from computers, cell phones, medical devices, cars, and even advanced military technology. So this has resulted in a massive supply chain crunch, which has been a key contributor to inflation here in the U.S. Well, luckily, the Biden administration just passed the $280 billion CHIPS Act, which includes $52 billion specifically to boost U.S semiconductor manufacturing. But this money won't do much to solve the long-term problems that have hamstrung the U.S. semiconductor industry and might actually be a huge bailout for the U.S. chip manufacturers, which have spent nearly a quarter of a trillion, that's trillion with a T, quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decades on, you guessed it, stock buybacks and shareholder dividends. So now we are joined by The Lever's Julia Rock, who sat down with Hassan Khan, a technology procurement expert with a PhD in semiconductor policy from Carnegie Mellon's Department of Engineering and Public Policy. Wow, that is a mouthful. <laughs> Julia, tell us a little bit about the CHIPS Act and what you spoke to Hassan about. Yeah, so the CHIPS Act was this actually pretty major piece of legislation that passed uh, just before sort of all the chaos around the Inflation Reduction Act. 
So it was a bit lost in the news cycle, but it, it was this big industrial policy bill aimed at both sort of reviving the U.S. semiconductor industry, which, as you pointed out, has has largely been offshored over the past few decades, as well as some other sort of technology and science policy aims. Um, and, and one of the key parts of the bill was giving a bunch of money to semiconductor companies for reshoring their manufacturing in the U.S. Um, and so I had this great and fascinating conversation um, with Hassan about sort of the history of the U.S. semiconductor industry and how exactly we reached this point where most not only is most manufacturing of cheap semiconductors that are found in like cars and computers offshored, which has been a huge um, contributor to inflation, but also the most advanced semiconductors, which are really key for sort of national security issues, um, also are no longer made by Intel, which is a U.S. company. The most advanced semiconductors are now made by a Taiwanese company. Mm. And so we had this great conversation about sort of how we reach this point and then why the CHIPS Act isn't really going to solve this problem. I'm just curious, and this is just a, a frank question, but like, how much semiconductor history research did you do ahead of this interview? Because I've already listened to a little bit of it. And it's like very, it's like very heady. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm just curious as a reporter, how much prep do you do going into something like this? So, I had actually interviewed Hassan for a story, I think, a year and a half ago about how New York is trying to pitch itself as the new global hub of semiconductor manufacturing. And they're trying to do this by giving a bunch of money to companies to start manufacturing chips in upstate New York. And, you know, despite Cuomo and now Governor Hochul and Chuck Schumer's best efforts, still not happening. So I learned a little bit about the history of semiconductor manufacturing for that story um, and then have just sort of been following the chips bill and reporting on it a little bit and slowly pick things up uh, by doing that. Yeah. That's just what the Hudson Valley needs is a bunch of uh, <laughs> microchip corporations coming in. Um, exactly. All right. Well, now let's go to Julia's interview with Hassan Khan. So, you know, throughout much of this history, the U.S. had some of the most advanced manufacturing technology, except you point out a brief period in which Japan overtook us in the 1980s. You know, today, the U.S. doesn't manufacture any of the most advanced chips below five nanometers, whereas um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company manufactures over 90 percent of advanced chips. How did we reach this point? Yeah. So the inflection point that comes um, that leads to sort of the state of affairs that we're in today is really uh, sort of the seeds of it are in the 1980s when um, Japan overtakes the United States. What ends up happening is that there's a, a massive set of failures in the U.S. where a lot of semiconductor firms go out of business. Um, and then the industry actually reinvents itself post that um, uh, fiasco where it, it essentially bifurcates. So there's a set of firms in the United States that maintain their manufacturing capabilities and they maintain them and then, um, but, but they manufacture their own chips. So in uh, industry parlance, they're called in integrated device manufacturers. Um, at the time that included firms like Intel, AMD, uh, IBM and TI were some of the biggest names. Then a, a new crop of firms begin uh, emerging around that same time that are called fabulous firms. So these were firms that would design their own chips, 
But because of the emergence of standardized design rules, which actually came out of work that was funded by DARPA and uh, the U.S. government on um, how to design chips with standardized processes, because everyone else prior to that was kind of doing it with boutique processes, they could design the chip, hand over the blueprints of that chip to a third party manufacturer, and that manufacturer could manufacture it on their equipment because of these standardized design rules, right? Um, so those are the fabulous firms who would design the chips, and then they would have a foundry manufacture the chip. So you, you have this split in the industry where you had integrated device manufacturers. Um, many of the most famous ones were based in the U.S., um, and then you had an emerging class of fabulous firms. Um, again, some of the largest ones were based in the U.S., and those fabulous firms would leverage foundries who oftentimes were not based in the U.S. because those foundries could be lower cost in Asia. This is where Taiwan Semiconductor comes in. It gets started in the 1980s, sort of building some of this business um, um, by, you know, by, by getting business from, from emerging fabulous firms. Anyway, fast forward, throughout the 1990s, it's those integrated device manufacturers who continue to dominate in process technology. Again, the most famous is Intel, but there's basically a race between firms like Intel and IBM throughout the 1990s to continue to push the technological frontier. As time goes on, however, the number of firms who can maintain both design and manufacturing rapidly dwindles because maintaining your own manufacturing facilities is prohibitively expensive. It costs, you know, I mean, you've seen the numbers today. It costs 10 to $20 billion to build a state-of-the-art fab. And then with the emergence of these foundries and the standardized design rules, you know, the economies of scale essentially say like every firm doesn't need its own fab when you can have, when you can outsource uh, to a third-party production facility and they can manufacture for you at a lower cost. So the number of manufacturers who are operating at the leading edge, I think, and don't quote me on the exact numbers, I think in 2001, by leading edge, I mean like what was leading edge technology at the time in 2001 was on the order of 18 to 20. And then by 2018, it was three only one of which was based in the United States, so it was Intel. The other two would, would be considered TSMC and Samsung. So what ends up happening specifically in the context of the United States is that whereas in the 1990s we had multiple firms vying for technological leadership within the U.S., and they were obviously competing against foreign competitors, within the U.S., by the mid-2000s, we have one firm, and it's Intel. They're our champion uh, 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 firm in terms of technological process. And so when we talk about America ha ha having the ability to make the most advanced chips, it was Intel's ability to manufacture the most advanced chips. So where do we, where does the freak out about our law? There's actually, so I'll pause here and I'll say the current freak out that began during the COVID pandemic about America's semiconductor supply chain, one of my core complaints has been that it's actually muddling several issues. There's one issue, the loss of American technological leadership, and that's functionally TSMC's overtaking of Intel uh, in terms of process technology, right? I'll come back to that in a moment. The second one, which gets readily conflated with the first one, is uh, uh, our dependence on foreign manufacturers for the vast majority of our chips. And then there, everyone quotes the number that only 12% of semiconductors are manufactured in the United States. You've seen this number thousands and thousands of times. It comes from an SIA uh, report that they did with BCG, where they cite that it used to be in 1990, 40%, but now it's only 12%. Um, but I'll come back to that in a moment. And then the third is there's, you know, the, the concerns about um, uh, 
you know, reshoring and, and resilient supply chains that everybody suddenly cares about because we realized what shortages are like. Um, and then, of course, you know, manufacturing jobs and build back better and sort of the rhetoric about creating good employment opportunities all across America. Okay, so let's go back. Everyone, so Intel actually lost the technological lead, I want to say in 2018 or 2019. But at the time, you'll notice no one cared. No one cared. You weren't doing podcasts about semiconductors in 2018 or 2019 because it was sort of this like obscure, like it didn't really matter because the even though Intel could no longer manufacture the most advanced chips, the most advanced chips, which were now being made by TSMC, were primarily being manufactured for American design firms. So firms like AMD, Qualcomm, uh, and NVIDIA uh, were some of the largest customers for TSMC. They had the most advanced designs and they would be the ones who leveraged uh, TSMC's process capabilities to leapfrog um, Intel's offerings. So this was, this was, although TSMC overtook the technological lead, it was not seen as like a net loss for America because American firms still had access to that technology and they were the ones leveraging it to the most effect. But the crazy part, and this is where I, we, I, I give you this whole background on science policy is because if you look at the history of EUV development, America followed the science policy playbook to the T, and yet the first commercial applications of EUV never happened in America because our ability to commercialize EUV rested solely on Intel, and Intel fumbled the bag on 10X, Right? So our technology leadership was fragile because it was reliant on a champion firm. I don't necessarily blame Intel for this. That's going to happen. Technological development at the frontier is extremely difficult, and Intel is full of brilliant people. But from a policymaker perspective, we all of our chips were in one bag. They were in Intel's <laughs> bag, right? And Intel, a pun not intended, yeah. but I guess it's a good one. And But Intel... <laughs> Failed to be able to commercialize uh, EUV before TSMC. And that's one of the major reasons. Now, there's other reasons in too, but that's one of the major reasons they fell behind. But here's the crazy story. If you look at EUV technology, its antecedents are a joint development program between national laboratories and the semiconductor industries beginning in the 1990s. To put it succinctly, EUV technology, of which there's only one firm in the world who can make those um, uh, machines, it's called ASML, it's a Dutch company, is based off of technology developed at Sandia National Laboratories. So U.S. government technology, which the U.S. government helped to fund the first beta, to, uh, the first alpha tool up at SUNY Albany, at SUNY Albany's Nano Center um, with ASML, and then also the first beta production tool was installed at Intel in, in their Oregon development facility. But the first commercialization of EUV technology did not happen until TSMC was able to implement it with their seven nanometer chip. You know, we now have, have the, uh, the CHIPS Act passed this week. Biden's going to sign it. Um, and this is constituted by a few things, subsidies for building chip fabs money for, I think it's uh, about $25 billion for um, research and advanced manufacturing tax credit, 
Um, and, and you sort of said, well, this is functionally a bailout for Intel, which we just talked about is a triumph of lobbying efforts and that it is wholly insufficient to stop America's long-term loss of competitiveness in semiconductors, which as I think this conversation makes very clear why that would be the case. But you also supported its passage. Why? Here's the unfortunate reality. I don't, I think when you go through the history of where we are, I think it becomes clear that simply subsidizing manufacturing facilities for firms that are already wildly profitable isn't going to solve sort of the deeper rot. However, this Congress in particular, I do not think is capable of like sitting down, crafting and passing that bill that it would take to do all of that work um, without probably spending a bunch of time and putting any passage of any bill in jeopardy. So on net, I think getting something passed is much better than getting nothing passed. My worry is that what I expect to happen is now Congress will say, well, we gave you $52 billion. And then NSF, we gave you 20 odd, $25 billion. So we did our job. We're done. We don't have to think about this like chips and science policy stuff ever again. But I think as I've tried to be very vocal about is the, the, the issues are much deeper and like money will help. But I think it's like putting a fresh paint of coat on a house that needs new drywall. You know, like the house will certainly look nicer for a while. It might even fool a buyer down the line who buys the house. But at some point they're going to realize, oh, holy crap, the foundation is in bad shape. And, th and that's where I worry is that we're not actually having the conversation about why the foundation is in bad shape. We just bought into the narrative that America needs to make the world's best chips. We can't rely on Taiwan to make the best chips because China's going to invade them. So we should give $52 billion to the industry to make the best chips in America. But what that means is, like I said, it basically means Intel, please make the best chips in America. And we'll, we'll give that funding. It looks like that funding will be made available to firms like TSMC and Samsung, who are some of the other manufacturers that are at the leading edge or close to the leading edge. But TSMC has said explicitly, they're never going to build their most capable facilities outside of Taiwan because their, in their knowledge base, their best engineers are in Taiwan. They have a local ecosystem of expertise that's available to go between their most advanced facilities and troubleshoot things. They're not going to build their most advanced facility in Arizona when they've been doing everything in Taiwan for 30 years. Same with Samsung. It's the same story except in Korea, right? So we will get fabs from TSMC and Samsung here that will probably increase the number of chips that are made here, but they won't be their most advanced fabs, right? And then the only manufacturer who may have its most advanced fab in the U.S. will be Intel, which is why it comes back to it's functionally a bailout of Intel. And what's, what's ironic is that after the CHIPS bill passed the Senate, Intel reported its earnings and reported its first net loss in I don't know how many years. I think it's in 30 years. And on that earnings call said they're going to reduce their capital expenditures next year by $4 billion while increasing their dividend payment. So all this talk that we've been having for the last, I, don't, I forget how long Congress has been debating the CHIPS Act, is we need to invest in American manufacturing so that American firms and global firms can build factories in the United States. And the one firm that's close to the leading edge, that's American headquartered at its earnings call, like two days later said, 
actually, we're going to reduce our capital investments and we're going to return money to shareholders. So we need a new approach. And, and we, have to, we actually have to say, we have to explicitly say the game has changed. Because what Congress just signed us up for is a subsidy race with China. And I do not think that the American Congress and the American taxpayer has the appetite for a decades-long subsidy race with China. And that's my worries. We'll pass this bill, but what happens in three to five years when China continues to pump $50 billion a year into its industry to subsidize its firms? Will Congress re-up this every three to five years? Because if not, we need to come up with a new game plan of how do we get off this like shitty treadmill and change the nature of the game, right? And so I think the way that we're going to change the nature of the game is we have to start rethinking some of the institutional structures that we have that fund science and technology development in the United States. We've known about, you know, people will talk about one of the core issues with maintaining our technological lead in semiconductors is the fact that no one funds, like venture capitalists don't fund semiconductor startups, right? And there's a host of reasons, but basically it's they're really expensive and they take a long time to return capital. And so VCs are gonna go chase apps that you can stand up for like a million dollars and sell for a billion dollars six months later, right? But we've known about that problem for decades and we don't have new institutional approaches in the United States to tackle that problem. And sort of since um, we've gone down this road a bit, can you talk a little bit about the NSF technology directorate that yeah, was so, included um, in the okay. bill? I, I'll say, I, I think my feelings on, on the NSF tech directorate bill are, are not dissimilar um, to the ones with regards to the chips portion. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's not a bailout, okay. um, but I think it, it doesn't solve the institutional problems that we have long term. Um, but again, it's better than nothing, right? Because I think it's very clear uh, you can look at all sorts of data that shows that U.S. government funding of R&D as a percentage of our GDP has been on a long-term decline, basically because like we've been getting a lot richer, but we haven't really been funding that much R&D. And in fact, if you break down like government R&D funding, like a surprising amount of it is funded basically through the DOD and the NIH. So if you strip out DOD and NIH funding, like NSF funding, you know, like the stuff that you might think of as basic science that like funds like crazy new technologies. I think is a, is a much smaller portion of the pie than we than we would have thought it would be. Now, where my core complaint with the tech directorate is, is twofold. One, uh, it's overly prescriptive. If you look at it, they basically say you have to fund these technologies, right? And there, someone, someone, I don't know who, someone gave Congress a list of like, here's some cool new shit that we should just like make sure America kicks ass at. And like, you go look at that list, and I don't recall the list off the top of my head. But on many of those technologies, there's already so much private funding. It's not clear to me what the case for additional public funding on those technologies is. Right. This goes back to that question that we we're talking about. Like if the industry is already doing a bunch of work on it, like why does the government need to like subsidize it further? Right. There's tons of stuff that the government could subsidize. I don't know, maybe like vaccines for uh, covid or like antibacterial right uh, uh, approaches that we like woefully underfund but we're going to fund quantum computing which like google microsoft intel and a host of other firms are all throwing uh, millions of dollars into every year like what's the value add of that marginal public dollar it's unclear to me so one it's overly prescriptive in that sense i don't know what the marginal value add of, of the public dollar is there second and this is the other one that worries me does the nsf know how to do technology development like, where, where did we get the idea that the NSF is the right institution to develop new technologies? And this is not a knock on the NSF, because, like, the NSF's competence is funding basic science, 
right? And I think there's all sorts of complaints to be made about its ability to actually fund basic science well that gets into like the way we write grants. This kind of goes back to the NIH discussion and Patrick Collison. There's like tons of people on the internet are all over that. They're much more wired into like that complaint than I am. But like, why do we think that the NSF as an institution will be good at developing technology? That's a very different skill set than funding and developing scientific knowledge. And that's not a knock on the NSF. Like no one is asking Google and Apple and Facebook to invent new science. They're like, go make new technology, right? These are different skill sets that require different organizational techniques. But we've basically just given the NSF a new left arm and said, hey, you should really figure out how to use this. I, I think that setting them up, that, that tech director up to fail. And I mean, it, you can look into it. Like the NSF actually has like a, a hodgepodge of like tech development programs like i and like all these other like weird, like, you know, litany of acronyms. And it's not clear to me that any of them have been notable successes. So it's like, what is the uh, historical record that gives Congress the confidence that the NSF is the right institution to do this? I think it's more just like the NSF was there and everyone's like, well, we need to do some like new tech shit. And tech shit is basically just science shit. So let's just give it to the NSF. <laughs> It's pretty lazy. That's probably right. right. It's yeah. like, like what, what's, distra- what's distressing to me is it's like pretty lazy. Um, but like to be to be like frank, and I, I mean I don't think too many people feel differently. Like I don't have particularly like high view of like what Congress is capable of today. So I don't expect them to be able to do more. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more lever time. For our final segment today, we're gonna be sharing David's interview with Stacy Walker. So Stacey's story is one of the most interesting in modern democratic politics. In 2016, Stacey was elected to the Lynn County Board of Supervisors in Lynn County, Iowa, becoming the first African-American to ever hold that position. Now, lest we forget, this was also the same year that Donald Trump was elected. So David spoke with Stacey about his experience campaigning and now governing as a progressive Democrat in a red state during the Trump era, as well as what national Democrats can learn from him and now what Stacey's plans are for the future of his political career. Hey, Stacey, how you doing? Great. How are you, David? I'm, I'm good. Um, I, I really wanted to talk to you because we're moving now into election season where Democrats have to try to win uh, some red districts, have to try to win some red states, uh, states that were previously blue states. And you are an elected official in Iowa. And Iowa used to be a blue or at least bluish state and is now considered a fairly reliable red state. So that's why I wanted to talk to you this week as we head into the midterm election season. Before we get to that, just very quickly, you were elected to the Lynn County Board of Supervisors, uh, becoming the first African-American to ever hold that position. And it was also the year that Donald Trump was elected uh, and won Iowa. I guess to start off this discussion, why was Donald Trump able to win a state like Iowa? And why have Republicans been able to take over a formerly blue state like Iowa? David, that's a big question uh, that I think political scientists are wrestling with um, and one that I get asked often. I will say this, if I think back to what was happening in 2016, um, I know at least that the Democratic establishment um, here in Iowa did not believe that Donald Trump had a chance in hell in getting elected. 
clearly uh, they were all reading the tea leaves incorrectly. As we um, would later find out that about 33% of union membership, at least in our state, um, voted for Donald Trump. That's an incredible number. That's just an incredible number. It is. Um, we lost uh, in between 2016 and the following general election, um, several blue collar labor strongholds uh, throughout the state of Iowa. Um, I had this conversation uh, actually last night with a friend, and I think part of it could be attributed to uh, Hillary Clinton's um, unpopularity. Uh, but certainly another part of it has to do with the fact that uh, the Republican Party right now is speaking to something that resonates um, with a, a lot of folks, particularly um, folks who at one point comprised part of the Democratic coalition. Um, and so it was almost like the perfect storm. And then one other thing I will say uh, that may be more uh, pertinent for this conversation and that we can extrapolate on later is that I'm not sure that Americans believe that their lives are improving under democratic leadership, that there are material improvements to their lives. Uh, and that is something um, literally tangible that the Democrats can do immediately uh, to address the growing schism between their base and, you know, the election. I mean, this stat, Iowa had 31 pivot counties in 2016. That's 31 counties that voted for Obama and then flipped to Donald Trump. What specifically beyond Hillary Clinton, what kinds of issues do you think lots of voters, union households, working class voters in Iowa decided that the Democratic Party wasn't representing them and decided that the Republican Party was representing them? I mean, are there, is it ag issues? Is it, is it uh, wages? Is it, is it cultural issues? What, what is it? So I carry the rather uh, unpopular and, and untested belief that this really isn't about uh, policy really isn't about issues. I think it. I think it borders more on culture, um, and it has a lot to do with the perception that Democrats have of not being able to get anything done. Uh, David, I think I saw you tweet something to this effect not long ago uh, about like our message can't be um, we're not able as Democrats to do anything for you until we get you know, more Democrats in office, but don't vote for the other team because when they're in power, they're going to do all the bad things. So we can't do anything while we're in power, but don't vote for them because they can do things with their power. And and, and that is born from this instinct that Democrats have um, uh, toward incrementalism, right? Like we talk about changing the status quo, but when we're able to do it, either we don't or we do it in a way that's so minimal that results aren't readily recognized. And so I don't really think it's any one issue. I think that um, there is a perception and it, it, it may have some bearing in reality that Republicans are sort of speaking um, are about the bread and butter issues that used to be in the wheelhouse of Democrats way back when, the early 90s. I mean, we were a state that was literally known for uh, a liberal senator by the name of Tom Harkin, who was a master at this sort of prairie populism and, and speaking to these pocketbook uh, issues. 
Um, and Democrats have a tendency to be a, a bit heady, um, which I personally don't mind. But if we're going to be a bit heady, we have to also then deliver results uh, that uh, common folk um, can realize. I'm not sure we do that. You mentioned the democratic history of a place like Iowa. Let's turn back the clock for a second. And again, you're an elected official in Iowa. So you, you've won elections in uh, one of the big counties in Iowa. It's a Demo still a democratic county. But let's turn back the clock and ask the question, what was different about the Democratic Party in Iowa or nationally when the party was winning elections consistently in a place like Iowa? What, what was the party doing different then that it's not doing now? That's an even bigger question. Um, and, and I say that because I am not so sure that what we were doing then is necessarily instructive for what we ought to be doing. But from, from, from what I uh, know from history and what I know from living in this state, um, and, and I said it earlier in, in this interview even, uh, people like Tom Harkin, um, when he was campaigning, um, really talked about uh, the bread and butter issues. I think Democrats have been maligned um, for um, you know fighting culture wars, um, which look, I as a black man am really happy that some Democrats uh, took a very strong position uh, during the black liberation movement that was in full swing a couple summers ago. Very happy about that. Whereas I think there are a lot of other Democrats would that would point to something like that and talk about how it is a culture war or talk about um, point to our positions on pronouns as being a culture war when those uh, issues are very meaningful to certain segments of the Democratic coalition. Now, on the other side of that, though, what I think we don't do well is knowing how to have a position on an issue like that that might otherwise alienate a lot of um, other uh, white folks in this country, in this state is to then be able to take very clear positions on the issues that they actually care about and feel are germane to their uh, everyday life. I've used this before. Every person who ran for president uh, on the Democratic side um, in this past election cycle um, repeated a phrase that every American deserves quality, affordable health care. Every one of them said it, and it must have been poll tested that that's what they ought to say because they all said it. There was only truly one candidate who talked about what that actually means and what it looks like and took a very clear position on it. It's not going to be good enough to thinking people for us to continue speaking in platitudes um, which there's a time and a place, right? I understand the need for soaring rhetoric to inspire and motivate. But there's also a time and a place for straight talk and to say, if I am elected, these are the things I will do. This is how it's going to improve your life. They don't want to do that. Therefore, you should support me. We have to be able to do both. We have to be able to speak to the issues that impact minority coalitions within the Democratic Party and speak clearly about issues that affect everybody. And again, I'm not sure we do that well in the Democratic Party. So you as an elected official in Iowa, what are you doing differently in your elections, in your city uh, to try to combat this? I mean, and, and, and I should ask, 
when you say this to folks in the Democratic Party establishment in Iowa, what is their response? What what do they say to you? Do they agree? Do they disagree? Do they do or do they sort of think that we need a more uh, uh, the Democrats need to be a more centrist, corporate friendly party and just uh, portray the Republicans uh, rightly so uh, as extremists and that's the way they can win? What what are you hearing from folks uh, in in Iowa about what we're talking about? I'll tell you what I hear the most, and it is really frustrating. What I hear the most from, we'll call them establishment Democrats, is that they agree with me. They agree with me even on the issues that I think most folks publicly would label as radical. They would say, they literally sit me down and they say, Stacey, I agree with you on health care. I agree with you on universal education. The problem is, is that they don't say that out loud. And so if it's only me and maybe a few other folks around the state talking about the benefits of universal education, universal health care, then we in turn look like the radicals. And it's hard to really move the base if there isn't a sense that the establishment party leaders actually believe in this. So you have this situation where, for whatever reason, um, our establishment, you know, prominent players in, in democratic politics, at least here in Iowa, won't say the things they actually believe in. It might be because the Democratic Party is led by Joe Biden, and that's not where the head of the party is on many issues. It might be that. It might be that their donor base it doesn't agree with those policy positions. But there is something that is preventing them, most of them, from saying what they truly believe in. And that is incredibly uh, problematic because we, we can never sort of move the ball uh, down the field, if you will, and, and get things done even when we are in power. Um, Democrats aren't going to be in power here in Iowa for a very long time, which I actually think should liberate them to be able to say the things they really believe in, and then they can develop meaningful contrast between the Republicans. Because right now, there isn't a whole lot of meaningful contrast, at least among Iowa Democrats and, and Republicans, on uh, several issues. So it starts with being honest about who we are and what we believe in and being courageous enough uh, to say it out loud. Now, you just said that, that the Democrats won't be in power. Just just curious why you're sort of definitively forecasting that. I mean, there's is that defeatism? Is that realism? Is that the Republicans just gerrymandered the state so badly that they're that, that it's going to be impossible? What's that about? Here's a problem, and I believe this to my core, um, which is to say I don't believe that I'm wrong on this. What seems to be the case after 2016, Democrats, establishment, neoliberal, centrist Democrats went into a panic because we lost and we not only did we lose, but we lost to a maniac in Donald Trump and his acolytes are now starting to win uh, offices across the country. So understandably so, everybody is trying to figure out what we need to do to prevent this from happening. What I think the natural answer was for a lot of establishment types was for the party then to move to the right, to start chasing the independents uh, that we lost to the Republicans, to start chasing, you know, the voters in some of these formerly blue labor strongholds who are now supporting Donald Trump. 
we started to chase them. And that's dangerous for a lot of reasons. Um, number one, it moves the overall Overton window to the right. And so now it's literally changing the, the sort of median position of our politics um, nationwide. Uh, but more dangerously, it's leaving behind the uh, different groups, the constituent groups of the Democratic Party who need the Democrats to fight for racial justice and racial equity, who need the Democrats to fight for climate justice, who need the Democrats to fight for all of these things that are important to these constituent groups. And the Democrats have made a strategic decision to say, no, we know you have nowhere else to go. We know you have to vote for us. We are going to speak only to this group of people who have been to the right of us, um, who we think we're losing. So we are trying to assuage them. We are trying to bring these folks back into the fold. I'm not sure that's sustainable for the Democratic Party. I'm not sure it's the right thing to do morally. And I'm not sure the folks who are abandoning the Democratic Party um, to sign up to, to vote for a racist and Donald Trump are necessarily the folks that give a damn about what these other constituent groups need. And so it feels like betrayal to me, David. So moving forward, if you were advising Democrats running in red states, red districts in uh, what could be a very difficult midterm election environment, what would your two, three, four pieces of advice be as somebody who has been working in the kind of state, the kind of political terrain that the Democrats uh, have lost. So as a disclaimer, uh, it is obvious uh, that I'm a black man. And so my own personal political calculus, being a black politician in a predominantly white state, um, is a little different, my own personal approach, than what I might tell um, white candidates running for office in similarly situated states. Um, so there's that. And also, uh, I might add for any of your, um, you know, people who are viewing this interview that the book case behind me is totally blank. I am, I am exiting um, electoral political life. Uh, so I've already started packing up my office. So uh, keep that in mind when I answer. Um, black, white, or anything in between, I would tell a candidate, and I mean this, this is not me being cheesy. I would tell a candidate to talk about what you're passionate about and what you actually believe in. Um, and I say that because it turns out when you talk about things that you actually believe in, you can be convincing, you can be persuasive. Um, whereas, you know, if the DCCC and the DSCC and any other group, third way, if they're sending you poll tested talking points, I just would be skeptical, particularly if you don't believe in those things. We're never going to move the ball if the only thing we can say about health care is we believe in quality, affordable health care. I mean, if I hear that, if I hear that anymore, like if I hear that, I just as you said it, like I, I could feel kind of this this rage build up in, in in my body 
Because when I hear that and then think about something like the Rube Goldberg machine of the Affordable Care Act, burying everyone in paperwork, uh, insurance companies jacking up prices, and that was the solution. And then I hear that rhetoric. I, it just drives me insane. And I have to believe it drives voters insane to know that it, it's basically horseshit. Right. Not a lot changed for them. I am I am not in a position to say that, you know, the quality of life for a person who didn't have health care before the Affordable Care Act, sure, you know, sure. didn't get better because it, maybe it did. But but it, it didn't change enough and it didn't help in the way that I think a lot of voters believed it was going to help. And you can chalk that up to, well, you know, that's just government for you. But it really isn't if it is a case that most industrialized advanced democracies have been able to figure this out and we haven't. I think it really is more of a testament to how powerful, you know, big pharma and, 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 and the insurance companies really are and how much money plays a role in, in developing our politics. But to, to kind of circle back, I would say um, talk about what it is you believe in. Um, and not only that, but do your homework, be prepared to explain um, how, you know, the policy you are proposing, if elected and if enacted, would impact a person's life. And I think you lead from there. I think you have an honest sort of presentation. And I don't mean to say that other politicians are dishonest in their presentation, but maybe it's a little more manufactured than it needs to be. And we are being too cute when it comes to campaigning as opposed to saying this part about life sucks. I know it. You know it. We all know it. This is the policy I personally believe is going to help improve, defeat that barrier or, you know, help you sort of advance in your life and then talk authoritatively about it. Um, because I think voters are craving authenticity. I think they are craving strength for a party to just say, screw the parliamentarian. We are going to do this, um, a show of force and exercising power when you have it. Um, because otherwise, if we don't, and I mean this with all of my heart, soul, mind and body, if we don't exercise power when we have it, then what's the point? Why, what's the point? Why are we why are we, you know, convincing mostly young folks to go knock on doors ad nauseum to make phone calls? Why are we convincing, you know, little old ladies to send fifteen dollars to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer? Why? What's the point of the exercise if when we get to the position of power, we don't use it? We don't make material improvements in people's lives. So that leads to my final question. You've laid out what seems to me to be a very common sense, uh, solid strategy, and yet you are not seeking re-election in 2022. You are in a position of, of some power, uh, not a huge amount of power, but certainly an elected official in, in a state that needs uh, better elected officials, and you're leaving in 2022. What led you to that decision? Is it, I mean, I, I know it's not you giving up, but if we need people like you in office, why are you leaving? So um, I appreciate the question. Um, I'll start by saying that um, all too often, I think we've come to rely on 
on politicians to be the truth, the light, and the way, the absolute savior that's going to get us out of out of our messes. Uh, and I think politicians, elected officials, are most certainly a piece um, uh, to that process, but but they're not all of that process. And so I say that as a preface because um, I know that I'm not um, an anomaly. I know that there are other uh, good folks who um, just need the opportunity to run for office. And so I I feel good knowing that I can step out of the way and, and someone else who is uh, equally good, if not better, um, is, is, is going to replace me. So I'll start by saying that. But what I will also say is, um, you know, at least for me, um, operating as I do in, in, in the Democratic Party here in the state of Iowa, there, there is no upward trajectory for me. Um, and I have no desire to be a local elected official for the rest of my life. Um, at one point, I thought it'd be pretty cool to be the first African-American senator from the great state of Iowa um, and to see how far I could um, extend my political life, if you will, um, with with the idea that as you as you ascend to higher office, you can help more people and you can influence, you know, national politics. Um, I don't desire that anymore because I don't feel valued in the Democratic Party here in the state of Iowa. I feel only useful when the uh, you know nominees of our you know our party have been selected and they need people like me to go around and talk to progressives and talk to black folks and and keep them on board because progressives and black folks didn't want that person in the primary. Um, and that's not okay uh, with me personally. And it's it's hard enough being a black man in America. It's hard enough being a black man in a predominantly white space. It's hard enough being a black leader uh, in a predominantly white space. I don't want to belong to a party um, that whose only utility for me is to keep black folks and progressives in line. Um, I know that the establishment types in my political party in this state and nationally don't want to see candidates like myself um, um, nominated and winning offices. We are a threat to the neoliberal order. Um, and that is an obvious thing. You look at all of the squad and the extended squad members, you have legitimate groups in the Democratic Party working really hard to unseat them. Um, and there's a reason for that. They, they, they don't fall in line typically, and they are proposing policies that um, get in the way of the wishes of the donor class. And so um, you take all of that and you, and you um, add it all up and you add up the fact that, you know, Iowa isn't necessarily a vacation state. Uh, so we um, have an incredibly difficult weather um, and we have a state government that is increasingly uh, being more radicalized and to the far right uh, and a Democratic Party that feels very apathetic at this point. Um, it's hard for me um, personally and it's hard for me professionally to stay engaged in the way um, that I have. And so what I've resigned myself to to believing is that we all have a role to play in this grand liberation struggle that we're participating in. And um, at this stage in my life, my role may have been to be an elected official for six years, and it might look different um, uh, after this. But it's my current 
trajectory is unsustainable. You know, I, I really appreciate that candor. Uh, right after uh, I worked in Washington, I lived in Montana. And it feels like a state that's in, in some ways similar to Iowa, at least politically, that it it, it was able to be a kind of labor-based uh, blue state periodically, actually for a long time uh, until the current era. Uh, but it is a state after uh, the governor there uh, and Democrats, grassroots Democrats won the legislature. Uh, it has now moved to, to the right and it feels like the same kind of dynamic happened there. And so I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, I completely feel you on what you're saying about being a, in that culture, in that situation, and feeling like it, it feels kind of hopeless. But I also appreciate you saying that, that there are many different roles to the struggle and that elected office is one role. And there are plenty of other roles uh, to play uh, in moving our politics to a better place. Uh, Stacey Walker. Thanks so much for taking time today. Thank you, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium will get to hear this week's bonus segment, the best moments from this past week's Lever Live show, in which David and special guest Kate Aronoff discussed where the climate movement goes from here after the passing of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, far be it from me to underestimate the creativity <laughs> of the Federalist Society in finding things to, uh, to quibble with about this bill. They, you know, have exceeded expectations before. If you would like access to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you subscribe, you get access to all of our premium content, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. Also, one last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your preferred podcast player. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting that my coworkers have been doing. Until next time, I'm producer Frank. Rock the boat. <laughs>